Well, thank you, praise team. That was amazing. <laughs> I am um, just... It's exciting to be reminded of the, the majesty of our God. Uh, incomparable. Uncontainable. What an amazing God we serve. Uh, Psalm 24 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. <laughs> An exciting truth as well. As we worked among the Duoway, we uh, we were thankful to have the opportunity to go to take them back to Genesis and show them that God is the Creator of it all. He's the initiator from the very beginning. He created this world, and it's all His. In fact, He created them, and they are His. All people are His. This tells us. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible makes it very clear that those people that are His, that He owns, they need to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life in order to be a part of his family. But all of us are part of his creation. All people everywhere are his, as the whole world is. Amazing truth, and even more amazing perhaps. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3 that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What an amazing God we serve. I, I, I don't like to compare myself to God, but... If it were me, I think it would say something different for sure. It would say something different for sure. Early on, I would have destroyed the whole bunch. What an amazing, merciful God we serve. I thank you this this morning for the opportunity to come and share. Uh, Valerie and I are always glad to come and share. And again, it's because uh, you are a part of what we're doing. And so we come to report, yes, um, but also to... Uh, to share a little bit of what God's been, been doing with us and, uh, and to remind you of, of the needs in Indonesia and around the world. I've had the opportunity to share here at Bethel a number of times and I think on a couple of occasions. Uh, on one of those occasions, we looked together at, at some of the Old Testament stories. Uh, I kind of come as the missionary and I kind of wanted to avoid those standard missionary passages and so we look back at the Old Testament and we showed how almost all of the Old Testament stories that are in your head right now, whether it be David and Goliath or, or, or the story of Moses or the story of uh, 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 Samson, whatever the stories are, uh, Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, all those stories that you learned in Sunday school, in almost every case, if you look and read that story again, you'll find a, a verse or two that says that God did it so that his name would be known, so that he would be known throughout the earth. That's why he did the plagues on the Egyptians. It, it's there. It, the, it, it, God makes it clear. It's not just something I read into it. There are verses that say this is why. It's because he has always designed, he has always intended for his people who have come to know him, that they might show his glory, they might show his goodness, and that those around would see him and come to know him. It's always been his intent that our neighbors and those far away would see God's work in us and come to know him. This morning I'm not going to avoid those verses. (laughs) So let me start in Matthew chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to hit a lot of verses this morning, a lot of passages, and uh, you can try to keep up with me. Some of them are going to be shorter, and so we'll be finished by the time you find them, but uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. God told, Jesus told those that were following him that we might pray to God that he would send people out to reach others. Yes, he, he, he in other places commanded them to go, but he also told them part of the work is that we would pray that God would send workers to the places that need workers. Uh, one of the reasons I especially enjoy being, being here, I especially, I especially enjoy coming to the UP and challenging people to consider God's heart for the world. I enjoy challenging people among whom I grew up to consider God's desire that others around the world would come to know him. And perhaps that's because of my own, my own history. I don't claim that my history is the same as others, but I came to, I came to a, a, the Christ as, as, a, as a middle schooler. And God immediately began to change my life. And as I look back, I certainly wish I'd allowed him to work faster in my life than, he did, than what I allowed him to do. Uh, I didn't become the perfect young man by any stretch. Um, but God immediately began to change my life. And I immediately began to realize how good God is as he took away my fear, as he took away my perversion, as he continued to work and make me into the person he wanted me to be. And I was very thankful for that. But I was a Christian a long time before it ever came to mind that, you know, somebody really ought to be going to tell others about this. I was thankful for what God did for me. I was thankful for for his work in my life, but somehow I just never, whether I was never exposed to it or whether I was blind to the exposure that I had, I just never picked up that God wants his people to bring him glory and to do that uh, to help reflect his goodness to those who, who don't yet know him whether they be the neighbors whether they be the people you work with or whether they be the people on the other side of the world and, and eventually God obviously did bring those things to mind he did uh, help me to consider those, those ideas uh, and it came from a number of angles certainly it was an increased exposure to scripture. It was uh, some understanding of, of uh, a better understanding of missions a little bit as I came into the, began to learn a little bit. And some of that, a lot of that came through WHWL. As I would hear Mission News, Mission News 77, if you can remember back that far, Mission News 78. Uh, Wycliffe, yeah, Wycliffe Bible Report, Translation Report it was called. Other, other programs like that to give you a little hint of missionary life, but it also threw out some facts about the world and about God's heart. I was reminded in those times of, that there are thousands of people groups around the world, thousands of people groups that don't have any light among them. That's to say there's no, there's no church among them, there's no, no person among them who will go and tell them about, about Jesus. And therefore, that group of people, maybe in the hundreds, maybe in the hundreds of thousands, maybe in the millions will not really be reached until someone says, I will go, I'll cross the barriers, whatever it is to get there. Maybe linguistic barriers, obviously often geographical barriers, political barriers, whatever it is, I will find a way to cross those barriers, to live among them, to help them understand who Jesus is, what he's done in my life and what he wants to do for them, what he's already done for them. At that time I remember hearing about 
uh, a survey that was done for seminary graduates, and they said that they surveyed a bunch of seminary, uh, uh, several seminaries to find out where these men graduating were intending to work. And they said that of, of those graduating that year, that 90% of those, 90% of the graduates intended to, to work, to, to, to live, to minister in North America. Let me point out, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for every one of those graduates who pastors in North America. But, but that leaves 10% of those graduating to work among 90% of the world's population. And something just didn't seem right. And I don't think it's because there weren't enough, because there were too many come, going, going to North America. So that's not it. But I think as a church, as God's church, we... Uh, have been irresponsible with the task he's given us. I heard a recruiter say once that one of the greatest hindrances to young people uh, seeing God's heart for the world and going out and, and taking part in that is Christian parents. I, I talked a couple weeks ago with a, uh, with a pastor, actually, who said, yeah, I've told my kids, don't, don't do it. It's too hard. It's too hard. And Christian parents, whether it be they don't want their kids to go to some weird, far-off place, even more so often they don't want their grandkids <laughs> to go to some weird, far-off place. Those are realities. Uh, my daughter was married two weeks ago. And that helped me to see some things in a new light. People would often come to me during that time and say, Ed, I see your excitement. I see that you want to do something for God. But you know what? There's so many needs right here, right here in Marquette County, right here in Michigan. Why would you go so far away? And there are needs right here. And I hope that we're aware. And I hope this church is focused and and intentionally meeting some of those needs. But at that time, I guess the, 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 the idea came to me that why should anyone have the opportunity to hear the gospel twice? before everyone has had the opportunity to hear it once. And those people groups and those millions, billions of people around the world just weighed on me. And ultimately it came down not to my convincing, not to my numbering up the facts, but God made it clear that I was to be involved, and I'm thankful that he did. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 28, the other passage that you thought I would talk on. Matthew 28, and we begin at verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. I stopped for a moment. As I was preparing for this message, that phrase stuck out to me. I I don't know that I've ever seen it before. Here it is, Jesus has, has not only walked among them and, and, and done miracles in their presence, this is the 11 disciples, and he's done miracles in their presence, and, he's, and now he's died on the cross, and certainly that threw him for a loop, but now they've seen his resurrection power, and he's standing before them. It says they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. It's not unusual, I think, for believers, for those who have come to Jesus, to have some doubts and even to question God, this really isn't 
your plan. Maybe you didn't really mean it when you said that there is no other name under heaven among men whereby, no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. Maybe, maybe you really didn't mean that. He said, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son has not life. I think, I think Jesus did mean that. So some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think most of us like to hang on to that last phrase. <laughs> I am with you always, even to the end of the age or to the end of the earth, some, past, some translations would say. And we should. That's a very important passage for us. But it's interesting to me to see it was given to, given to us, given to his church, given to his, his disciples in the context of him sending them out and saying, get about the business. Go and tell people. Teach people. I have a friend in Papua, a fellow missionary named Wesley Dale. His father was martyred, actually, in Indonesia by some, by, as he, they were trying to reach another tribe. He's there now and serves and, and teaches in a Bible school. And uh, in his spare time, he likes to dig into the Greek, Greek manuscripts and, and solve some of, the, some of the apparent contradictions and some of the things he looks to look in the Bible. He's, he's digging deep, and he's written a, uh, what's it called? I don't know, the initial manuscript that's about so thick of the life of Christ. And in it, he has worked out exactly uh, what day Christ was born and exactly what day Christ died. And he can pin you tell you what day of the week it was and exactly where it was. I, I, I don't do that. And, and frankly, I've not even read through his thick manuscript that tells me that. But I do know that it's approximately 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ walked among us. Approximately 2,000 years ago that he died on the cross to pay the sins of the whole world, the Bible tells us. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Approximately 2,000 years ago. And yet, and yet there are billions of people in this world who have yet to understand who Jesus is, who have yet to hear the story clear enough that they can make a decision to trust him. How can that be? How can that be? Church, this is our task. This is our task. Ask the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. I think when, uh, when Jesus said that, I think maybe he had, had two things in mind. Certainly he wanted us to pray that, that God would call people to go out, but I think he also intended that, that we would pray that those who are going out, or those who are out, would also be about the things that they should be about, because God has a plan for each of us, and he has works for us to do. And uh, that we might be where we should be and doing what we should be doing. Uh, most important that we would be the people we should be. Let's pray, Lord of the harvest, that he'll send forth laborers, yes, and, and into the harvest field that he's intended. Uh, some of those specifics have changed for us in the last year and a half. You saw a video of, of uh, showed a lot of our work in Obukain. And that's been the focus of our work uh, from 1992 uh, until uh, t- till now. There's, those people are, are dear on our hearts. Uh, but in the last year, there's been a bit of a shift in my role as I serve. World Team in Papua has about 12 family units working there in various roles, some in tribal situations such as uh, we have been in, others uh, in maybe a little nicer 
uh, living situation, teaching in a Bible school, doing translation, uh, helping with medical work, um, doing discipleship through various tasks. And so as we function there together as a body, we have to have a leadership, and I have been on the leadership team now for well over half of my time in Papua. But about a year ago, or a little better, uh, the fellow who had been our, our director, our, our, the main guy, uh, after 11 years serving in that role, said, I, I think my time in this role is done. I want to get back to the jungle myself. I want to get back and minister to those people that are heavy on his heart, the Tokeni people. And so the field then said, okay, well then who do we have? And they, a number of them nominated me and came to me and asked if I would serve in that role. And my initial response was, no, I don't think so. First of all, my, my heart is in the, among the do-away. And, and secondly, I, I'm not sure that I've got the gifts that even I want my field director to have. I, I, don't th- I don't know that I've got the skills that I want my field director to have. Some of them maybe, but certainly not all of them. But God began to challenge me to at least be willing to let my name stand. And the field chose to put me in a position of leadership. And that has meant that uh, our focus, uh, at least for, for last year and, and through this next year and perhaps beyond, we'll see as... It's a two-year term, but uh, it's commonly expected that it's, it's desired that the field director serve consecutive terms. Our focus has been on, on trying to assist, trying to help that team of, of 12 family units. And thankfully, we also work together with, with a lot of other organizations, with MAF and with Wycliffe and with uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and there's Baptist Missions and there's others working together and we work, they all work together very well to the praise Praise and honor of our God. I'm thankful for that. But, but my role as field director of World Team Pop was to help uh, encourage and help, uh, help them to accomplish what they want to accomplish. I, I want to help them be sure that they, they understand what, if they want to accomplish this, then, then what does that mean for tomorrow? What does that mean for next year? And to help them maybe to develop some plans and then to, to challenge them a little bit. Are, are you staying to your plans? Or what, what's been happening? And, and, or what should you adjust? And where are you going next? And so my, my role is somewhat to help that. Also then, what, what can I do to enable you in, in that role? But also part of my role is to say, where does God have World Team Papua going? What, what yes, we're all, we're many of us, and we're involved in many different things that some, we, sometimes, sometimes we seem unconnected. But where as a group, what does he have us, what, where, where does he have us going next? And it's become pretty clear that one of the areas that we're going is into Muslim ministry. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a unique situation. Indonesia, although it's not a Muslim state, has more Muslims than any other country in the world. <laughs> not in the Middle East. The, 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 the country with the most Muslims is Indonesia, right there north of Australia. Most, uh, the farther you go west in that country, it's made of over 13,000 islands, and the farther you go west among those islands, the stronger the influence of Islam. We are on the very east end. Um, and because of political history, because of a number of things in current situations, um, we're able to minister quite freely there in Papua in ways that other missionaries uh, aren't able to minister in other parts of Indonesia. I think in a couple of weeks you'll hear from the, the Bowens, is it? Uh, there's missionaries coming to share, and, and according to the bulletin, I don't, know, I don't know this family, but according to uh, what I've seen, they also work in Indonesia. And if they don't work in Papua, my guess is they're under a much more... Uh, tightly controlled situation is to say they, 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 uh, they can't go in. Well, I go in as a missionary. I go in uh, with, uh, sponsored by the National Church. I go in with my visa approved by the Department of Religion. And it's basically a missionary visa. 
In Indonesia, that can only happen in Papua. The government, for years, has been trying to move people from the more densely populated areas of Indonesia to the less densely populated parts of Indonesia. And that means they're moving them from the west. Excuse me, for your sake. From the west. <laughs> from the islands of Java and Sumatra. And they're moving them to the less populated areas, including Borneo and the island of New Guinea. As they move them, there's a number of things in their mind. Certainly it is to help relieve the population density in those areas because where those people are most dense, it's also some of their best farmland. And so uh, that's kind of beginning to cramp things a bit. Uh, but also they, uh, they, they want to... Uh, I can't give you the complete history, but Papua in particular has a different history than most of Indonesia. And any, every Papuan's heart is a desire to be free from Indonesia. They would consider themselves oppressed by Indonesia. They would, they, they would either hope to be independent or they will tell you, we are independent, we're just momentarily oppressed. <laughs> and so uh, there's always a push for a referendum for independence. I think the government sees that if they can move enough people from the other islands and put them in Papua, then if that referendum ever happened, <laughs> they would have more votes. And currently... Over 50% of those living on, the, on that island, on that province, uh, are from other islands. But also not too far down is the realization that those people coming from over there, the, the vast majority of those coming to Papua are from Muslim backgrounds. And I think, although the government is not a Muslim government per se, certainly uh, the men who are in government, uh, the vast majority would be Muslim, and I think there's a desire as well to to help Islam make its way into Papua. Because of the freedom that we have, we can work among them. We can, we can work as missionaries. It's not uncommon in Papua for a, for a Friday night uh, rally to be going on in front of the mall and have some youth up there in a band and then someone get up and preach. I go to buy vegetables in the market. It's not uncommon for a, for a, a lady to be there preaching away. Uh, I don't always agree with all of her methods or everything she says, but it's... In Papua, in Indonesia, in, excuse me, in, in Papua, you can do that. Other parts of Indonesia, uh, those things won't happen. Those things won't happen. So there's a freedom to us to operate that's not there in Indonesia. And then we realize that those, those Muslims that are coming have been taken from their context. Uh, for most of the Muslims in Indonesia, Muslim is their identity. Yes, it's their religion, but it's, all, it's their culture, it's who they are. And they're not so much committed to the Quran as they're committed to their Muslim identity. And so as they are taken from that uh, background, taken from their family, taken from their jobs, taken from their uh, even knowing how to raise food the way they did it back there, and put in a very weird place in Papua, uh, they have to change. A lot of things change for them. And that, that process of change opens them as well to hear new things. And so in Papua we have a unique opportunity to reach Muslims. We've seen that for years. We've wanted to be about that for years. But we were also focused on our tribes, doing things that we knew God gave us to do, that we just didn't understand how we could do it. But in the last couple of years, God made it very clear we are to do it. And so I'd like to share a video with you shortly that shows you a little bit about uh, some of that, Muslim, that new Muslim outreach that we're stepping into. World Team has had a rich history of working in missions. We've had the privilege of planting hundreds of churches and bringing the gospel to thousands. In Southeast Asia, our work has been primarily with tribal peoples, 
And for over 60 years, our tribal ministry has flourished and we continue to support it today. And now, God has given us the privilege of starting a new work and we need people to come and join us. What we're seeing in Southeast Asia is people on the move. A large number of people are moving out of overcrowded urban centers into smaller, outlying cities and villages. And they're moving for financial incentives, jobs, new homes, and new lives. They're farmers, shopkeepers, fishermen, hotel workers, teachers. Many are Muslim, some are Hindu, but most believe in some form of folk religion. And what we are finding is that when people make big moves like this, they're open to change. And they share with us that in their hearts they want something bigger and better for themselves and their families. We see this as a wonderful opportunity to share God's love with them, to share with them how God is drawing them to Him and how He wants to bless their lives. So our vision is to open community centers where these immigrants live and work. It's here that we can build relationships and share God's love by meeting people's needs. We're partnering with another organization, and they've already opened one community center. The center offers English classes, computer courses, youth camps, and athletic programs. And we want to add more, like parenting seminars, medical programs, counseling, agricultural seminars. Basically, the different types of programs we can offer are endless. And when we become friends with our new neighbors, helping to meet their needs, barriers that may have existed to Christianity are torn down. The doors begin to open and they start to see more of God's wonderful love for them. We're standing before a huge open door that God has put before us. But we need more people to join us. We need people with the right skill sets to come and play a part on our team. Maybe you've thought about missions. Maybe you've felt a pull in your heart to help those overseas. Maybe God is calling you to use your skills in a new way. Give us a call and let's talk. Let's dialogue about how we can help each other as God accomplishes his task through us. Maybe this is the role that God has prepared you for. Uh, I feel I, I, I uh, what, want to apologize a bit. The videos we see this morning have both been uh, world team and recruiting for world team. I want to tell you that I'm, I'm here to recruit you, but I know there's a lot of quality organizations that you could be a part of and that you are a part of through your, through your church and through your giving. And, and my challenge to you is to get involved where God has you to be. If that's with world team, I, I, I would welcome that, but... but God perhaps has other places for you to be involved, other organizations that you would go, be a part of, um, and, and that's exciting. That's exciting to me. Um, I, I share these videos that were made by more our organization, but because they, they're, they're based in Papua, and they are what's currently happening for us, and uh, I want you to see that. Uh, regarding these, these community centers, we're convinced that 
that that is not the final step. This is not, this is not all that God has for us in Muslim ministry in Papua, but it's our first step. As we step into this, begin to step into this, I begin to learn more about Muslim ministry, and I'm trying to learn fast. As I try to, try to help our group to move someone in that direction. We're not deserting, we're not leaving behind the tribal work that we've done. We've got a, a, one family that's, that's in a tribe now, just about 15 months uh, in that village, and beginning the language learning, and beginning the cultural learning, and, and we'll be doing literacy and translation, and, and, and they'll be there for years to come, Lord willing. And we, we are looking for others to come and step into similar situations, but we also know that God uh, wants us to be involved in this new direction as well. And so we, uh, we're excited about that, and we ask you to pray for that. And uh, if you know of someone who's interested, let us know. I want to turn a corner a bit. Um, and maybe you'll think I'm going in a whole different direction. I think by the end we can pull it back together. You can let me know when, when you go out the door whether I successfully brought it all back together or not. But, um, <clears throat> some weeks ago I was reminded. I was reminded of the ugliness of my sin and the goodness of our God. Um, we sang this morning about the incredible goodness of our God, His majesty and His holiness, and his, that He's uncontainable and unfathomable. And, and How great is our God. Amen. Let me re- start reading from uh, 1 John chapter 1. And I'll begin at verse 5. First John chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Darkness, of course, a representation of sin there. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Our sin, our sin is a reality. Both before we came to know Christ, an ugly reality from which God has drawn many, most of us, to himself. One of the things, as I, as I think of sin, uh, there are probably two main pictures that come to mind. One is, when I sin, I'm guilty. And that's true. And I, and I see myself as if standing before a judge and being proclaimed guilty. And as we, the next few verses kind of give us, paint us a, a beautiful answer to that. Uh, beginning in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... John the realist, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. There's the beautiful picture. Yes, I stand before a judge, and I have been declared guilty of my sin, and yet, who's my lawyer? Who's my advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. A beautiful picture. Another picture I have of sin is is a debt. Maybe you sang the old camp song, he paid a debt he did not owe, I owed a debt I could not pay, I needed someone to wash my sins away. And that's, that's a reality too, but it's, it's a picture that, that, that the words give us. In fact, the next verse goes on to say, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Yes, Jesus paid my debt. An amazing truth. 
Those are two word pictures that, that jump quickly into my mind when I think of my sin. Yes, the ugliness of sin, but, but also, you know, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But the scriptures also give us other pictures of sin. They use other word pictures for it. They call it a weight. When you read scripture, they talk about the sin as a weight. Uh, in fact, in Isaiah 43, and you don't, you, you won't be able to turn there before I'm done reading it, so don't, don't bother. But in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 24, it, 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 God says to his people that, that, that they have burdened him with the weight of their sins. Hebrews 12.1 is a passage that we're all very familiar with. Therefore, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. In Psalm 38, the psalmist says, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Another word picture that the Bible gives us is darkness, and we've seen some of that there in John chapter 1. But we see it also in lots of other places. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sin is a darkness. Sin causes darkness. John chapter 3, not too far after our favorite verse 316, in verses 19 to 23 Excuse me, verse 19 to 20 says this, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. No doubt that's sin. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about exposing those deeds. He says, Have nothing to do with the fruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Sin is seen as a weight. It's seen as a, as a darkness. These are other word pictures that he gives us. Sin is seen as a separator. It's seen as something that causes lostness in our lives. God is concerned for his holiness. God hates my sin. And when I sin, I stand before him. Yes, I'm guilty of that sin. And, 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 and yes, there's a debt that needs to be paid. And Jesus, thankfully, has paid that debt for us. But I think God wants us to see some other aspects to our sin as well. Where do we first... Let me open it up now. Now it's your turn to talk at least a little bit. Where do we first see sin in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, yes? Genesis chapter 3. What is, what is God's response? He comes and, and he continues... First of all, he comes and, and seeks, Right? That's God's thankful response to our sin. As we turn from him, God continues to seek us out. But God doesn't come to Adam and say, you are guilty, buddy, you owe a debt. But he does help him to realize his guilt, for sure. But he also helps him to see some other things. Because before very long at all, Adam realizes, first of all, that, that, that his, he sees that his, his relationship with God himself is, is, is different. And, he, and he, he runs and hides. In fact, he feels a little bit guilty about his nakedness, and, and he hasn't been commanded not to be naked. So there's actually a feeling of guilt that's maybe not even, maybe not even real. Maybe you shouldn't be feeling so. But, but, but sin brings real guilt, and it brings false guilt, and it brings a lot of other things into our lives. It brings a separation from God, and before long, it also brings a separation with people. As he says, that, that woman, 
That woman that you gave me. And there's the accusatory part, isn't it? As he's speaking with God, not only say that woman is her fault, but he says, that woman that you gave me. Here it is now. This is Adam, now newly in sin. What happens to him? He begins to accuse God. He begins to think God did this. Okay? Even what he knew about God in the past now is beginning to be warped a bit. Sin has that effect in our lives. Okay, that's where we first see sin. Here's one maybe a little bit tougher. Where do you first find the word sin in the Bible? Anyone? Chapter 4. Yes. This guy must have studied some of the Bible before. (laughs) Chapter 4. Let me turn there. Genesis chapter 4. And I believe I want to start at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? This, of course, after Cain... This is, this is uh, before he kills his brother, but they've both made sacrifices, and the Lord has received one and not received the other, and Cain feels rejected, and he feels angry, and God comes to him, seeking him out as well. He said, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why, have your, why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, if you do not do well, sin will make you guilty. (laughs) That's not what it says there. That's true, of course. What does it say? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. God wanted Cain to see that sin is not just some 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 legal wrong that we do, but it's there is that sin is evil. Sin is out to destroy us. Satan is not some bad guy that says bad thoughts in our ear. Satan is out to destroy you, destroy your life, destroy your family, destroy your ministry. And here he tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door, as if, as if it's, a, it's a, like, a, like a cougar ready to, ready to pounce. There's the word picture that he puts of sin there. God is concerned with his holiness. There is guilt and there is debt. But God also wants us to realize what sin does in our lives. What sin does in our lives. That it's a burden he doesn't want us to carry. It's a darkness he doesn't want us to experience. It creates separation that, that, that he didn't intend. It creates a lostness that he doesn't want. It's helpful to be reminded that while God is concerned for his holiness and, and for his name and he hates my sin because it's an affront to him, at the same time he also, he also wants me to know that sin seeks to destroy me. God loves you. God loves us. And he wants to give us life abundant, his word says. Free from the burden, from the guilt, from the darkness of sin. And so I think, well, I wonder at least, if that wasn't on John's mind, the Apostle John in chapter 2 when he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, I've often read that and thought, okay, so I keep myself clean and I keep my legal boxes checked. But I think John probably saw a little deeper than that and he said, sin is going to destroy you. Sin is a weight. Sin is a darkness. It's ugly in your life. My little children, I write these things so you may not sin. 
Don't hear me wrong. I'm not here today to tell you that, that your happiness is God's top priority. I, I don't believe that. Your happiness is not God's top priority. In fact, he makes it clear that his top priority is glory for himself. And that, when you first hear it, can sound a little selfish. But God makes it clear that he is worthy of glory. Amen? We sang that this morning. He's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And he's the only one who is. His desire for your life is that you would bring glory to him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, go ahead, to the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2 is a summation of, 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 of the incarnation. It's Jesus coming into the world, right? That's the, we, we, some of us probably have that whole section memorized. I don't, so I'm going to read it to you this morning. Who being in the very nature of God, beginning at verse 6, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be, something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen. An amazing truth that goes on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. Why? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Amen. He did this so that that people would see and worship and glorify God. It goes on, verse 11. And, and, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm. I left out the last phrase. To the glory of God the Father. Why did this all happen? Why did, he, why did Jesus come to earth? Yes, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, he came to pay for my sins. But ultimately it was to bring glory to God the Father. That was the purpose for his life And he has given us that purpose for his life. I know a number of years ago there was a book, very popular, The Purpose Driven Life, where the man tried to help us find the purpose for our life, but the scripture makes it very clear. We have a purpose in our life, and it is to bring glory to our God. And as we allow him to work in us and and take the sin out of our lives and make us more and more like him, then we bring glory to him as we walk. And whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God so that whether we're in an office or we're driving a bus or we're, we're, we're digging a ditch or we're in Obukain, more so than just our intended words to tell people about Jesus, our very lives tell people about Jesus and we bring glory to him. That's his desire for us. That's his desire for us. Another passage, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to try to read it quickly. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that we would be happy. No, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Why did he do this? So that in days to come... He might use us as his bragging piece. Isn't that hard to imagine? In the days ahead, he might say, look what I have done. I took these lives who were going their own way. In fact, they were against me. And going in a different direction, I turned them around, I drew them to myself, and I made them something beautiful. 
Why? To bring glory to himself. He wanted to be clear that it wasn't us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. I'm sure you could quote those verses. Don't forget that the next verse goes on to say, though, he says, we're not saved by our works. But nor does he want to leave works out of it. That's to say, he doesn't want to leave works out of our lives. He wants to discount that it, by any, any idea that we might come to, come, the idea that we come to God because we've done great things. That's, he said, no way, that, that's not there. But he goes on to say, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has works for you to do to bring glory to him. One other thought I'd like to discount is God is not the wind beneath your wings. That's a common, I've heard that in some of our Christian songs and some, some ideas that he's going to help me fulfill, he, he helps me fulfill my dreams. Uh, I, I think more often our dreams, like our desires and our habits and our very will, need to go to the foot of the cross and allow God to give us his dreams, his, his desires, his plan for our lives that he has foreordained for each of us. And if we allow him to keep us from the weight and the darkness and the guilt of sin, we can bring glory to him as we obey his plan in our lives. Whether that be, again, driving a taxi or, or working at a store or serving coffee or you're working in the Middle East. That wherever you go, you'd bring glory to him through your very life. I enjoy singing praises this morning. That was an incredible experience. But I think some of them, perhaps it's just my opinion, I believe God is more pleased with our worship, the worship that is our lives, our obedience. As we go where he's told us to go and as we are the people he wants us to be, that is worship and that is praise and that brings glory to him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My dear children, I write these things that you will not sin. His desire for you, his desire for each of us, is that we would know him. And yes, that we would be forgiven of that guilt of sin and that we would be freed from that debt of sin, but that we wouldn't have to go on in our lives walking in the darkness that he didn't intend for us. That we wouldn't have to go on in our lives bearing the weight of our sin, separated from God and separated from people. He has better things for you than that. And he wants you to be a part of his plan. He wants you to be about the works that he has for you to do. And I don't know where those are today. He does. That may very well mean they're all every day is lived right here in Marquette County. Or it may mean that you go to Africa. I don't know that. But wherever it is, it's more important that we know him well and that we are living in relationship with him well, that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And that as we do, God will bring glory to himself through our lives. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Thank you for the chance to share this morning. I want to pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you love us and that you have... Uh, sought us out. And from the very beginning, we see that you, you, you work in, in Adam and, you, and you, you seek him out as, after his sin. And Lord, you sought us out and you drawn, you've drawn us to yourself. Maybe some here this morning have never come to that place of faith where they've never, never put their trust in Jesus Christ and they don't know that freedom from sin. They don't know that, uh, that freedom from guilt. Lord, I just ask that you would help them this morning, give them the faith uh, to call upon your name. And Father, 
many others of us have, have, uh, have trusted in you for a long time. And maybe we've considered mission work, or maybe we haven't. Maybe we've considered your heart for the world and your desire to see all men come to know you. Your desire that all people would come to trust in you. Lord, I just ask that you would challenge us with that. You wouldn't let us quickly forget that. And you'd help us to see our part in that. There are, I know there are people to reach right here within a mile of this church. And there are people to reach thousands of miles from here. And I just ask that you would let each of us know what our place is. And that wherever we go, whatever we do, we would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.